Greetings and welcome to the Afrofuturist Podcast. I'm your host, Ahmed Best. Thank you for listening. Welcome back. We've been gone for a while, but we're back now and I'm really excited to share with you these next group of interviews. And not only that, we have some really cool projects coming up in the very near future, so please stay tuned. Uh, I want to jump right into it because I really had a great time talking to this first guest. Her name is Janet Liriano, and she's the CEO of a company called Lumia. And Lumia is a clothing company that is at the intersection of art, design, nature, and technology. Janet and Lumia are innovating in the world of smart materials. We're already talking about wearables, and we're already talking about things that we have on our body that not only can receive data and transmit data, but can also do things like help us medically or help us emotionally. And Janet and Lumia are here to take that to the next level. I think eventually what's going to happen is these smart materials are going to be integrated into your clothes. And those and that integration is going to bring data services, medical aid to a whole nother level. I think it's going to increase the amount of information and the amount of ways we can treat ourselves when it comes to how we move forward and how we live in the future. I was really excited to speak with Janet and I was very happy that she took the time out to speak to me and I want to jump right into it because what she's doing with Lumia is really, really phenomenal. So please give a warm welcome for Janet Liriano. The future. Janet Liriano. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Thank you for coming on the Afrofuturist podcast. I really appreciate you. I really appreciate your time. Um, the thing that really is so, I, I think, amazingly interesting um, to me about you and Lumia is how you see textiles, how you see garments. And um, I was wondering if you can explain that a little bit more. Like, what do you see the role of wearables? And, and you know, first, first, if you can, in your own words, describe to, to, to us what a wearable is. Sure. So there was a few things there that I'd love to talk about. And the first thing is how we see textiles, how we see apparel. Um, and their importance. And then we'll talk about wearables, which, you know, actually over here in Lumia land is a bit of a banned word because if technology is properly integrated into garments, it should just be a better product. It shouldn't have a subcategory like wearables. If you do it right, it's an amazing shirt that's magical. Maybe not wearable, but more on the side of magic. So to talk about what you what you let in with, you know, how we see um, the materials that make up our world and particularly apparel and textiles, you know, we really feel that it's some of the most interesting and compelling technology that man really made. If you think back in the day, somebody looked at a sheep and said, that that should be a sweater and I'm going to shave this animal and spin it and make a staple and, and turn it into a fabric. There's a ton of hard engineering that goes into creating fabrics, that goes into creating garments, uh, a ton of math that goes into creating a pattern that makes a beautiful suit and to take things from a three-dimensional state, make it two-dimensional to create this fabric and then make it three-dimensional again so that it hangs on the body. That's a, a beautiful marriage of art and science and, and engineering and, and making. So the fact that that industry in general is looked at and the products that come out of it are looked at like commodities and things that aren't that aren't important, I think is a function of several things. The first, you know, this isn't a question you asked, but I guess it's a point I'll bring up. You know, a lot of the, the labor that goes into making these garments have been, you know, offshored and outsourced, um, you know, to low wage workers. That doesn't make the work less valuable, less technical. 200 years ago, you know, some of the best paid folks were tailors and seamstresses and, and the fashion houses of Europe and so on. And, and now that the workers that create these garments are, are not in those places, the value of those garments have perceived to be decreased, but their value remains the same. You know, it's, it's what protects you. It's what keeps you warm. It's what, it's what communicates your personal style. And there's no reason why they should be left behind in the technical and uh, you know, interesting revolutions we're seeing with tech products getting into these these other materials why, why leave apparel behind um is kind of kind of the thesis there that was a very long answer to a short question but 
it's kind of how I roll. <laughs> no, that's great. And and you talked about wearable being a bad word where you are. Can, explain that to me. Why um, it it seems to be a very marketable way to to sell what you are trying to to sell the integration of technology in fashion. It's a it's a very easy easy buzzword, marketable word. Yeah. Um, why has it all of a sudden turned into this bad word, as you said? Yeah, you know, lots of folks think think it's a good word. And let me, we've always felt sticky about it. We've never been a fan, largely because it shouldn't be technology and fashion, because fashion is technology. And this is a, we're just upgrading it. That's kind of how we see it. If we If we niche these products into this category, wearables, then we've niched it and we've, we're, we're ignoring what's true and what's inevitable that every product in the future will have some form of technology. And to create a subcategory the way that we're creating it, like a wearable product, you know, you immediately think something with like a thick plastic sensor or something with hard blinking lights. It's, it's, a, it's a product that maybe you wear on your, on your arm, but not what you take with you every day. Um, we would never call our cell phone a wearable, even though you know, we, we wear it actually, it's in our purse, it's in our pants, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a different class of product and it's, it's much more than a phone, it's a smart phone. So what we're trying to do is create smart clothes, smart couches, smart floors, smart roads. We're not trying to create a new class of product, we're trying to uh, elevate and evolve the class of products that already exist. So we tend to feel that wearables is a way of, yes, while it's very marketable, it also doesn't really speak to the true market potential of what's coming, which is everything being smarter. Right. How does that fit into the culture of fashion today? We have these huge icons of fashion, you know, the Chanel's, the Valentino's, the Gucci's, and there seems to be this stigma about fashion, especially when you're talking about couture and high fashion, which um, I believe that integrated technology can fit into very well. It doesn't feel like the integration of technology and art are, are really forefront in fashion culture today. And wondering how that, how you and Lumia and your, and your vision, your idea fit into that idea of fashion culture and possibly changing that culture. Yeah, you know, I think, so there's three sides to that question. And the first is, um, you know, I'll get to how we see ourselves playing in this space last, but let's talk about how the technology space feels about itself, how the fashion space feels about itself and like where the truth really is. You, you hit on a really good point, you know, fashion, high fashion in particular, you know, it's a lot about the craft and exclusivity and the materials and the brand. And, you know, it's, it's very, you know, in some ways ego and ID driven, you know, it's, you're wearing X brand, not Y brand. You're using this leather, not that leather. It's you know very specific. But what's lost in that process is the purpose of what they're making. Um, and I, and what I mean by that is you know back in the day, the the great shoemakers of Italy were the great shoemakers of Italy, and they built that legacy because they were so committed, in very much a technological way, to make the best shoe. The fashion houses of France were very committed to finding the best way to drape a garment or to make a bodice. It was very tech-centered, and there, that legacy was built off of that study and iteration and craft. And then these legacies were made. And then it's you know protecting that, but making the making of it cheaper. And somewhere along the line, in the chase for lower cost of goods sold for for higher margins. The fashion industry lost sight of the fact that it was always a part of technology. It was a very critical part of you know what people interacted with every day. The tech industry, on the other hand, really has spent quite a lot of time studying. In, you know, I'm kind of making this up in terms of how I'm about to use this word essentialism. They've they've really and and not in the way that folks probably use that word, but the way that I'm going to use it is, how do I make something that everybody has but doesn't feel like a critical part of their lives like their cell phone an essential item how do i make this smartwatch an essential item let's study the habits of humans and how can i tailor and you know that's a word that used that's used in tech a lot how can i tailor this product and the and the service it provides to become essential and i think the tech industry does that really well and they iterate off of user feedback and it's very collaborative 
Uh, and the fashion industry has kind of forgotten its roots in some ways. And, you know, all these decisions are being made in, in small rooms and there's a fear of change and wanting to hold on to that legacy. But that legacy that most of these companies stand on is one of innovation. It's one of experimentation with materials. And I think that the fashion industry is really coming to a reckoning where they're realizing if they don't take risks, if they don't learn from the tech industry, which is a really good mirror of what they should be doing, um, and reclaim their space as an essential product, um, you know, it's, it's not going to go well for them. And I think that's why you've seen the closing of many legacy brands and, you know, the death of retail. There's no such thing as that, that industry going away because we all wear clothes. But it's important. I think there's an opportunity now, especially with the material innovations that we're seeing, to really reclaim their space as the primary essential item. Um, and, and that's just not happening right now. And that's the space we really look to tackle, to merge the two and remind people that uh, this stuff is critical and it can do a lot more than what it's doing. Do you think the integration of technology in um, moving architecture and living architecture is going to be a difficult thing to try to get people to really jump on board with? And I say that because it almost seems as if when people talk about a jacket that helps regulate your temperature. They think more about NASA than they do about walking down the street in New York City. How do you bridge that gap between the everyday person who can use this type of material with this type of information and technology in it from, you know, almost the savvy, you know, I, I, I try not to say like elitist crowd, but there is a there is a bit of a, an audience for that type of product that doesn't feel like the average everyday person. Is that going to be a time thing? Is that a, is that an influence thing? Is that a marketing thing? That's a great question. And um, I think it's a combination of all those things and, and some others. I think initially um, a lot of the first wearable use cases were like not immediately relevant to everyone. Not everyone cares about their heart rate. Newsflash, you know, like, there's nothing that people in my industry say often. It's like, oh, biometrics. The average Joe is not that health conscious. Um, I mean, more so people are more health conscious, but that's not a universal need to know exactly how many steps I've taken. But it is a universal need to be warm, to be cool. Humans have always sought to protect themselves from the elements. That's a universal need. And if we can enhance that basic function, there's no reason why that can't be accessible. I like to look at Gore-Tex as a strong example. You know, they have two very fundamental offerings that are things that people of all classes and groups are willing to pay for and save for because of the value it gives back, windproofness and waterproofness. Everyone wants a jacket that is going to stay dry. You know, in the worst of hailstorms and snowstorms and rainstorms, that Gore-Tex label is a symbol of a quality and a higher purpose of that good. So it's going to keep you dry or it's going to keep you not super chilly or whatever it may be. Um, and we really see ourselves playing in that space. You know, we're not out to create um, really site-specific gimmicky products, not to insult other products, but we're really looking to think about universal problems and how can technology solve that. Everyone wants to be seen when they're rock walking on a dark road at night to not get hit by a car. So if your jacket, when the sun goes down and you're going on your late night jog, illuminates itself because there's a sensor that can tell that the sun's gone down. That's a value add that we think uh, has universal interest in applications. And where I think we'll find less resistance than we've seen in the past, Lumi is not here to be a standalone brand to tell you to like our taste. We want to work with brands, you know, across, um, you know, price points to offer these different use cases that they can integrate that work with their designs, that work with their style, that work with their end consumer. So we really want to be um, that infrastructure, but we're not telling you what colors to paint your house. And I think um, with that approach, we'll address some of those problems that we've seen in mass adoptability. How do you make this integration of technology in fashion, how do you make that invisible? What is your approach to putting something that is technologically in the infrastructure of a garment or of a, of a piece of furniture? How do you make that invisible so the design pops out and not um, the, the step counter or the heart rate monitor? 
because it seems like it, it really seems like now people are promoting technology that you wear um, all, for all this for the purposes of big data, right? It feels like everybody's trying to collect your data so they could find a way to market something to you, to sell something to you based on that information, right? So it, it looks like these things like your heart rate monitor and your, it's big data so you can buy the fitness tracker, so you can buy the diet, so you can buy the heart rate monitor, you know what I'm saying? So, and it sounds to me like Lumia is trying to make that so integrated into what you do that you don't even notice the technology. You touched on two separate interesting things there. So the data end, um, I have a lot to say about that. And the how we go about, and the why we go about integrating things the way we do, I'll start there and then I'll touch on the data. So um, one, you know, on our side, we have some pretty involved IP, uh, um, you know, quite a lot of te proprietary technology around how we create these textile circuits. They can be patterned to heat, light, and sense. But we really put the product first in what we design. You know, we, Maddie, uh, founder of Lumia, CTO, brilliant woman, um, used to work. You know, you know, she's been sewing since she was six. You know, she's got an engineering mind and understands how garments are constructed. So, you know, for her, when we're when we were developing this technology and with our with Esgi Ukar, who's our head of product, you know, they really put the product at the center of all engineering decisions. Like, how is this going to affect the drape? Is this something that can be sewn? It needs to live in the wash, you know, over 50 times. Are we solving the foundational problems we're going to run into if we're trying to live behind the scenes in a way? Uh, not to be too punny, but to be a little punny. So, you know, that was about four years of, you know, hard work to get the IP to where it is today. And we work closely with the brands and the designers. You know, we have this program called the Lumia Lab where we go from concept to commercialization with the brands. We sit down, we throw everything at the wall. We say, what product should have this technology? Like, do you really need uh, a light on this luxury jacket? Maybe you want it in the purse so that people can see their items. You know, where is the appropriate place for this technology? And we really guide brands through that so that from an integration perspective, it's tasteful and it's elegant. When you were talking about data, and I want to address that also because we're playing in that space, but we've taken a very different approach. Um, I think no one minds people wanting to know something if you know that they want to know and you're asked and you know what you're going to get out of it. I think a lot of the resistance and anger that we're seeing um, as it relates to privacy and feeling like you look, you Google a shoe and then that shoe follows you all throughout the internet because all of these sites are talking to each other and, you know, you know, just this constant retargeting. It feels invasive, personal, but what's most offensive about that is that there was no consent. You never, you don't remember explicitly agreeing to have your search, you know, activity follow you everywhere. You probably did, but it, you know, you know that that shadowy business that's profiting off of your information, your activity, your purchasing, you know, you, you don't really feel a part of that conversation. So when we think about how our technology can be used, especially as it relates to data, um, we've developed this uh, sub-technology called Tile, which is a small data tag that specifically stores information on the tag around product use. So how often is this being worn? Uh, environmental conditions, like is it hot, is it cold? It's time to stamped and how often it's washed. Now that data stays on that tag. There's no way to get that data off unless you scan it. And to get that data off, it's using NFC, which for those who may not know is near field communication. And we're building a proprietary app leveraging specific blockchain technology, which is a very buzzy word, but I'll explain that later, to make those transactions transparent and to give user consent control and uh, agency over uh, selling their data. So they're really, and I can't think of a marketplace that does this, I'm not sure if one exists. We are pretty sure we're the only platform that's doing this in the way that we're doing it. We are creating products that now can generate this information. We're leaving it completely up to the user if they even wanna get that information off the garment. None of it is personal, like you know your email, your gender, your, your height, your name, none of that, it's just blue jacket worn 50 times and all, you know, information that's useful for the brand, but not necessarily to you, and giving them an opportunity to profit off of that, to sell it back to market researchers. So we've been developing that for a year and we've seen quite a lot of brand interest and quite a lot of positive user responses at this idea of being, you know, involved in a data marketplace that rewards you for the choices you make every day and the garments that you wear and why doesn't that exist? Um, 
and it should. So we're making it. So I say all that to say, you know, we really look at privacy, data sovereignty. We're very sensitive to the fact that technology and garments can be a slippery slope if you don't put um, integrity and, and ethics first. So we're trying to solve for that with this platform that we're building. How did you come about creating Lumia? Where did you come from? Like what, what influenced you to go, this is a thing that needs to exist in the world? Sure. So uh, Maddie Maxi um, and I have known each other for about, I want to say, wow, we're getting old, eight years. <laughs> um, and Maddie was a Peter Thiel fellow. Um, she received a Thiel fellowship, which is $100,000 to drop out of school and start a business. And at that time, uh, she kicked off and started a company called Created, which later became Lumia. Uh, and I've known her throughout that process. And I joined on shortly after that. And really, I was compelled by, you know, Maddie's vision of, you know, a smarter fabric and smarter world. At the time, she was working primarily on conductive inks and really was working more in a studio capacity, you know, doing uh, prototypes and samples for brands and really identifying a lot of these key issues. And, you know, we'd known each other for a while. I was like, wow, this vision is amazing. This is absolutely going to happen. I come from a design and engineering background myself. I was like, okay, well. How can I get, you know, head, shoulders and knee deep in this to just push this vision forward as much as I can and, and support a lot of that technical um, creative genius that she just naturally has. So uh, we started working together pretty early on. And, um, you know, the way that I describe our relationship is, you know, I'm here to amplify quarterback and elevate everything that she invents and find the right supply chain partners to scale that. And we work together to improve product along with uh, the third fabulous lady in our C-suite as Gilkar, and you know, here we are today. But the why, um, you know, personally, me, I'm very motivated by technology really mirroring nature. That's something I feel very strongly about. Um, you know, and right now it's a very masculine approach to technology, no offense to, to the men in the room. But, you know, if you look at nature, which is pretty unobtrusive and not fussy, it's some of the most, you know, beautiful, most efficient, complex systems that just make shit run. Oh, excuse my language. I don't know if I can curse on the spot. You can okay. say whatever you want. It's all good. You know, you think about a process like photosynthesis. So here you got this leaf minding its own business and this powerhouse like the sun minding its own business and these symbiotic relationships and these complex processes that are really selfless that make other things run. And, you know, everything works together to bear fruit. And why isn't technology that intuitive, that beautiful, that elegant, and that selfless, really? You know, because the leaves of a tree do not think they're better than the roots. I mean, I don't know if they think, but I mean, if they did, they wouldn't, because everything has a purpose. And all of these things are in service of, they're in service of service, really. You know, the tree bears fruit to make some more trees and all this other stuff, and we eat it. So why isn't technology, why aren't we driven by those similar principles? Um, so for me, I saw a very strong opportunity to get involved uh, more deeply in the tech space and really change that narrative about how, why, and what products we're building and, and for what purpose. Did you always want to be in this industry? You said you studied design in school. What, I mean, what, um, where did you see yourself and how did you land in fashion? Oh, my, I really landed, you know, no, I, I fell. I'm trying to figure out. <laughs> no. So um, you're from New York and, and maybe folks who are listening to this podcast may or may not know. I went to um, LaGuardia High School, which is a specialized high school for the arts, um, you know, because you're from the Bronx and you guys have Bronx science. There's always some beef, the specialized schools. Um, but I studied uh, technical theater. So what technical theater is, is like all the stuff that goes on behind the scenes. So lighting design, set design, costume design, audio and, you know, audio design um, in theater and film. And I got a special focus on lighting um, and uh scenic and, and audio and audio and i also did a fair amount of stage management worked at lincoln center for a while went to college in boston for design technology um for bfa in lighting and master electrician stuff so i've, I've always been interested in how do technical um how, what goes into making something feel good or how do we create things that make people feel and make people inspired or you know there's there's a lot of power and responsibility in in those spaces you know i realized in studying lighting design how sensitive people are to color how sensitive people are to sound and how you can encourage or manipulate those emotions to very specific means or you know and how you can um really uh, effectively 
get points across without doing too much. So I kind of encourage anybody that's interested in tech to study theater. One, you will learn how to budget and manage teams like a boss because the show goes on when it goes on and it better work. And, you know, like it's, it's a great education. Um, and after that, I started studying audio engineering um, in a more focused way. I did that for two years and then I moved down to St. Martin and worked at a medical school there, completely different, uh, in their robotics lab. Uh, creating an interactive simulation center for medical students to uh, practice what they would do in an emergency room with these robots that can simulate all sorts of illnesses. So it's kind of theatrical and like installing those systems and dealing with that. And throughout all of that, uh, Maddie and I were uh, keeping in touch, collaborating from afar. When I returned to New York a couple of years ago, uh, dived right into Lumia. Uh, and I'm skipping some of my other, other gigs in tech and design, but I've always been interested in and storytelling. I've always been interested in how we can make things better. So working at Lumia Fashion, I've, I mean, I've had to learn to match my clothes. I will say that. But I understand how things are made. I'm wearing all pink today, for the record. I'm like, okay, pink with some pink and some pink. Um, but, you know, how things are made is something I've always been passionate about. And, and how someone feels about it on the other side is something that I've just always been interested in. So when you look at a, um, a garment, either hanging on the rack or um, in your business, what do you see? How do you look at it? And how, how are you influenced by what's coming out? Like, do you immediately see something that could go in it, that could go on it, that could be integrated in it? Like, how do you tell the story of that garment? Oh, I really like that question. Let me think about you know what, the best way to answer that is probably through an example. Um, yeah, you know, when I, when I look at things, I tend to look at, well, first I ask, why why is it? So it's like, why was this made this way? I, I try to get into the mind of the designer and try to get into the mind of the problem they were trying to solve. Because basically anything we make, again, is a gift for other people or for ourselves. So what was this gift for? You know, I'm right now looking at a faucet and it's really strangely designed, like it's, you know, pitch is really low and it's got this weird curve and the handles are really small and I'm trying to figure out why did somebody do this and the, the sink is really deep because it's a slab sink I'm like okay well um, they are trying to make sure that that it's that high so that if you're putting a bucket under it you're not like trying to noodle around in there to get the bucket under it and the knobs are really small because you don't want to you know get more things dirty if your hands are messy and I start understanding like okay these are the problems you were trying to solve and then I start wondering, well, how could we do this better? And, and and what frustrates me about this thing? And what would make that better? And then and then you go from there. So to talk about a specific example, um, when we were thinking about different products to create to explain to brands the potential of this technology, we're like, well, let's think about shoes. Shoes protect your feet. Um, and we've got all sorts of different kinds of shoes. But wouldn't it be great if, you know, the elegant leather shoes that women here in New York wear through the winter were also warm? Because you pretty much have to choose. Either you're going to be warm and fuzzy and look like um, um, look like a Yeti because the shoes are hideous and then have to bring a change of shoes to be appropriate for work. Or you're going to freeze your little feet sloshing through the snow because your, you know, your leather is not warm. So we got into the business of designing a heated shoe with the battery in the heel and it charges via induction and the inner lining of the shoe heats and there's a sensor that regulates um, how warm it gets based off of external conditions. And you know, we thought about things like, okay, well, if the shoe heats, people aren't gonna wanna be messing around with the settings because it's by your foot. So let's stick a sensor in the leather so that it can auto-regulate. And you know, we might want a low, medium, high if someone's not happy with the settings, like a soft leather button. And, um, you know what, right now you don't plug in your shoes, so you shouldn't have to with these. Let's make sure it can charge via induction and design a beautiful plate so that you can just put your shoes down the way that you do. And we spent a lot of time thinking about what was the purpose of the shoe? How could it be better? And in making it better, let's make sure we're not adding any new habits. Because I think the second you start expecting someone to do something different, the return for that behavior change needs to be very high. And I think for most wearable products, they just expect that the user is going to be willing to do a bunch of random stuff for a very minimal return. So that's kind of how we look at these things. If I'm going to add technology to this, is it going to be just as easy as it is for me right now to throw on a sweater and walk out the door? 
if I have to unplug my sweater and then move the cable and then to put it in a little pocket and then put it on, oh, and then when I wash it up to make sure I have to take all this stuff out and then put it, you know what? No, that's going to fail. And I shouldn't put technology in that product if it's not going to actually be better. So, um, or just make the technology better so that it, it doesn't interfere. That's a very long answer, but that's kind of how we look at things. That's how I look at things. Um. I'm sure you heard of and you know very well because of um, the industry that you're in of the oncoming retail apocalypse, the closing down of these massive stores and the online way of buying things creeping up. And, you know, the future is still a little fuzzy on it. But the prediction is these big stores where you usually go and touch and buy and feel these clothing, the clothing that you buy are going to close and you're going to have to get everything from either um, a big box uh, online retailer or try to find some kind of boutique niche designer. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about the oncoming retail apocalypse and how we actually choose what we put on? You know, people make me laugh. I, I don't want to be laughing at people who say these things because I'm not laughing at them, but like humanity in general is kind of funny because, all right, let's pretend with our crystal balls, we can see into the future and we see a retail apocalypse. Guys, okay, like it's not here yet. So we know if we are so convinced that it's coming, what would be the necessary changes? Like if I know I'm driving off of a cliff, am I just gonna, am I gonna keep driving or am I gonna stop? Am I gonna reassess? Am I gonna turn the wheel? You know, like there's, there's opportunity to to change things. So that's the, the place I'll start. It's like anytime something feels inevitable, I know people aren't thinking creatively. That's, that's, I feel very strongly about that. So when we talk about retail apocalypse, the first thing I'd say is um, something evolving, yes, means certain things will die and certain things will fall by the wayside. And that glim, you know, grim, glum future of no stores anywhere besides big boxes and everything being delivered um, and, you know, the convenience and all of that, you know what? That won't happen if you create a compelling retail experience and listen to your user. Let's talk about, you know, the Apple store in its heyday. You, that is like a beautiful model of how you make a retail play very profitable. They created, they really thought about the user because again, it's a tech company, they have to think about the user. They said, okay, if somebody's gonna make an expensive purchase, I have to wine and dine them basically in terms of the level of attention, because I'm asking you to part with $2,000. You should be able to answer every question, fear, and concern. You need to test drive this computer. That was a completely new concept as it, as it went by selling computers. It was like, well, it's what it looks like. And uh, if you like it, you know, we'll ship it to you. And there you go. And that's not an enjoyable experience for most people. So I think Apple's a really good model. I mean, now there's some challenges with the lines at the Apple store, but I think that's a very shining example of if you actually think about what this person is here to do and design environments that make that easier, that make it inviting and make it exciting, and you put service at the center, um, I'm not going to want to wait two days for my blue jeans. If I know that this store is going to have it in stock, if I know that I'm going to get timely and courteous care, if I know that there's an express lane, if I'm here all the time, if the things that I want are there, I'm going to go there. Um, you know, restaurants haven't closed down just because of Uber Eats. And, you know, many of them have, but the ones that stay are the ones that put the user at the center of that experience. So I really think it's on retail industries to do their homework about their buyer and really, really, really study what can we do, not looking at trends and not looking at your neighbor and your competitor and what they're doing. No, what does my customer want from me, which requires a high level of listening and empathy. And these words are not used often in this industry. So as a very long, glamorous statement, but overall, I think retail apocalypse, I think it's a hoax. I really do. And I think there's a lot of opportunity to, I think it's laziness too, to be like, well, you know, we just shit the bed, guys. It's all, yeah. no, there's an opportunity to make something totally, totally baller. Look at Nike, look at um, Adidas, Adidas, depending on what side of the Atlantic you're on. They, you know, you walk in there, you're like, damn, man, I could buy some shoes and I feel cool in this situation. And wow, I get, I can see what I want. It, you know, there are good models. So model the models and build a model after your 
and put your the customer at the center of that experience. And I think you'll find folks will walk in your store if it's not a nightmare. Deal with that, you know, clean up your mess. That's my, my speech to apparel. <laughs> <laughs> now, out of all the things that um, you notice about a garment and um, that are important about a garment, what do you think is the most when it comes to um, making sure the 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 user has the experience that you are looking for the user to have? Is it the way it looks, the way it touches, the way it smells, the way it feels? Is it the packaging? Is it the way it hangs? Like, what are you looking at and where, where do you focus? What do you focus on first? If you have like maybe three or four criteria, what is the one criteria that you're always coming to first that goes, it has the thing and that's why it's a Lumia product. It doesn't have this thing. That's why it, it's not something that has to go back to the drawing board. What are you looking at? That's interesting. Um, so I want to make sure I answer the question. So you want to know how we assess other products in terms of what makes it, you know, I think it's both. How do you look at a product and go, this is, I, I would do, I do this all the time. Um, when I'm watching movies because I make movies and I write and I direct and I always go like this, if this were my movie, I would have directed this person in this way. Right? Um, so my question to you is if you see something and you go, Hmm, close, if this was Lumia, we would have done this. And, oh, and by the same token, if somebody at your company brings you something, you can, what is that thing that makes you go, this is a Lumia garment that we want to put out, or this is not something that we want to put out. We have to go back to the drawing board because it's missing the. Got it, got it, got it. I really appreciate that. So on, on both sides, I guess, you know, because our products live within other products, that's a very important question in terms of how we assess the product. Like if this was us or other tech products, um, for me, there should always, there, it needs to be elegant. It needs to be seamless. You know, there shouldn't, I feel like when you're looking at a garment that's very well made, you know, you, you just follow all of the lines and you don't get stuck anywhere. You know, it's just, you're just looking at the entire thing and it keeps you wanting to kind of go around and look and look and look like, wow, that's a, a beautiful, it's a beautiful sweater. Like you, you notice the arms, you notice the front, you notice the back because it's just truly well-made. I think things that are well-made make you stop, make you notice. If you pass it on by, um, you pass it on by. And I actually think the rise of streetwear really well-made streetwear is a testament to this concept. Something does not need to be couture to be quality. Quality is a very different class. You know, it's the richness of the color. It's the feel of the material. It's the drape. Um, it's how it hugs the body. It's, it's how the designer thought about where are we going to put this armhole and so on and so forth. You know that it was thoughtfully made. When you walk into these fast fashion stores where it's like clearly nobody cared about, they were just like, I'm going to make this shirt $5. So I'm going to spend 10 cents and who cares about the seam and nah, nah, nah. you can see that or you can see knockoff attempts at someone else's thoughtfulness. You cannot knock off thoughtfulness. Either you were or you weren't and it's going to show. So when we're looking at products that we'll integrate with, you know, we really want to make sure that it's considered. And if somebody comes to me and says, I want to make a light up suit, a uh, men's suit, I'm going to be like, no. Want to know why? Because that is just completely inappropriate for that item. <laughs> You're just not going to get it for me. Go find somebody else. So that's how that, you know, and if somebody brings us like internally, for me, I'm pretty fussy around integration. It's like, I don't want to notice that this is a different type of product. You should not know that that shoe has anything in there until it surprises you. So for us, there's, there should be that element of surprise and magic where it's like, oh, damn, I wasn't expecting that to do that. Well, oh, I didn't realize that that was there. Um, and, you know, just that spark of awe and like, kind of like when something magical happens, you it was a broom, but now it's sweeping itself. It's still a broom, but it's just doing what it does better. So that's kind of how I look at that. If someone's like, oh, you know what? It's so, you know, nobody on our team is like this. But if someone's like, oh, who it doesn't matter if, if this thing is here or if this is taking out or if this is uncomfortable, it absolutely matters. And, uh, you know, it's going to go back to the drawing board if it doesn't meet, meet that standard of invisibility, actually, in some ways. And how does how do all your decisions affect manufacturing? When you want to put a thing in a shoe or you want to put uh, you want to weave a piece of technology into a shirt, how does the manufacturing end work 
with something like that because I, I'm assuming now I don't know very much about um, manufacturing when it comes to uh, fashion and technology, but I'm assuming that there aren't a lot of places equipped with the ability to throw some, you know, fiber optics in a in a pair of pajamas. You know what I mean? Yeah. So how does that work? Like, how do you integrate manufacturing into your um, ideas as well? So that's a beautiful question because I think this is where, with all due respect, we're going to eat a lot of people's lunch. We are not expecting these facilities to become electrical engineering. You know, we're not expecting them to become tech companies because they're not. They make apparel. So our product needs to work with their supply chain. Um, so to speak to that, we spend quite a lot of time making sure that our textile circuit. So first of all, we're making a fabric circuit. So we're already head, you know, ahead of the game in terms of every person in a facility knows how to work with fabric because they work with it every day. So we're not bringing them a bunch of wires and saying, follow this schematic and solder this. You know, that's just way too expensive, way too slow. So, you know, from point A, we're thinking about the point B, we work really closely with the designers and the technical designers for apparel to make sure that the elements that we deliver are pre-cut and designed in a way that works with their supply chain. So um, the making, the patterning of the element for us is pretty standard, but we customize how we deliver those pieces so that it can be integrated more easily. So, um, you know, we find that the partners that we work with are really pleased because their seamstresses don't know or care that they're working with something super fancy unless you know there's a connector for the battery then they're like oh i guess this is i, I guess this is technical it's the only hard thing on this entire thing and they can just sew it or heat press it or bond it or you know whatever the finishing method may be for the good so we've addressed a lot of those problems with you know hard years of engineering to make sure um, we can deliver them something they're used to working with and that's really where we think we're going to be able to um, scale the integration of these products because it's a lot easier um, than teaching a seamstress to be uh, an electrician or, or, or an engineer. Uh, they're brilliant in their own right, but I mean, we shouldn't expect them to know how to solder. Right. And do you see eventually this method of, of fashion tech integration, making it into the maker space, making, making it into the home space, you know, growing up in the Bronx, my mother, my mother went to FIT, New York City. Yeah, it was great. And um, she made our clothes. We didn't have very much growing up. So, you know, whatever we thought of or whatever we wanted, she would go to the fabric store, buy the fabric and make it. Right. Oh my God, that is a lost art. Yeah, <laughs> and you know, subsequently taught my brother and my sister and myself how to do that, you know? So we grew up making our own things. And, you know, even to this day, I still have a sewing machine in my house when I'm just like, look, I want to have a specific thing or I want to tailor a, a, a pair of pants. I just do it myself. Right. Because I grew up doing it. And it seems like um, that it's it that has disappeared very quickly. However, however, um, the idea of fashion and tech can bring that type of excitement back to that home space. Right. I really like that point. Do, uh, do you see that happening? Do you think it could possibly happen that way? I have to tell you that a lot of wearable um, early innovations, it's exactly as you said, it was makers. It was a lot of people who make their own costumes or like make their own clothes, you know, wanting to put LEDs and then going on Adafruit and like, well, and then learning how to make a circuit. Like there was a lot of, self-driven and self-motivated innovation that happened that came from those people that came from that space of like well i want to make this thing i don't know how to make it so let me see if there's a way to make it and um that's really exciting and i i honestly never considered like what um the fashion tech space could do in terms of recatalyzing interest in making your own and you know making your own stuff and tailoring it but i think that's a super compelling point i don't see why not um i don't see why you know in theory down the road, you can't buy a bolt or a roll of heating, you know, material and get a simple pattern like you would online for other things and, and make and make your son a, a heated jacket if you don't want to buy the one at the store. Like that would be the ultimate goal, right? To have a level of ubiquity that it can be everywhere. Um, that other people can use it and 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 benefit from that function. I, I think that's a great point. 
and I don't see why not. Um, yeah, especially in places like in the developing world, you know, we talk a lot about um, how technology is reaching the developing world in the form of mobile phones, in the form of cryptocurrency, and all of these ways where you don't need a centralized thing to regulate what you get, whether it be education or whether it be your dollar, right? And we don't really look at fashion in the exact same way. And to your point in the beginning, like fashion was currency, you know, fashion mm-hmm. was also social status. And there was, there's, a, there's a bit of, you know, speech and activism in what you wear. And um, the hard part, especially when, you know, we talk about things like retail disappearing, the hard part is the, the divide between those who can afford and those who cannot afford and how that separates um, the, the experience, the human experience. And if there was a way to take the information that you have as far as um, turning these garments into this wearable technology, into this, you know, form of uh, fashion technology and have it have a purpose, have it have something. I mean, f- from the way I think it could be, you know, a way for children to stay warm in the winter when they don't have heat in their house. You know what I mean? So wondering if there's a possibility of finding that outreach, if there was a way or a place or a thought of making this type of thinking accessible. I think that's a very important point because for a lot of reasons, and the short answer is it's definitely you know, in our plan, pipeline, and vision. And me personally, I feel really committed to not creating silos of information. That becomes very dangerous very fast. Um, if you uh, put up a big wall around something that serves everyone, right? You, you, I mean, it's a great way to make a ton of money, but long term, it's uh, it's predatory. So that, that, that definitely needs to be in any, I think, ethical businesses plan. But to answer your point, um, and I think it's a very interesting point, there's always a dance as a startup between, okay, well, you know, we need to protect our IP and da da da, and, you know, make sure that we can grow. And, and then the, on the other side, you know, the social good and like the responsibility. One of the things that I, and it's not even social good, it's the responsibility. One of the things that I try to spend a fair amount of time doing and advocating, I think education is a really big one. People need to know what they should be knowing, A, to be competitive in the workforce, in the marketplace, and and you know where the future is going. I think blockchain is a really good example. I mean, there's a lot of amazing leaders that are people of color in blockchain because the barrier to entry is pretty much the same for everyone. There's not a lot of experts in that space, and I think that's why you see people like Sean Wilkinson from Storage and there's many other you know black people really leading in blockchain, which is interesting because everyone pretty much started from from zero. Um, if you're curious, you can do the work and study and get good at it. It hasn't been. Um, hidden in ivory towers at university that information is free and available on the internet so that you have these opportunities to rise i think for emerging technologies and labored work and skilled work like what we're doing it's really important that when you're looking to develop a workforce that when lumia you know is in that position and, and we consistently seek to do that that you're developing those workforces in those communities i think that's critical so i'm a part of an organization called the foa on advanced functional fabrics of america I do a fair amount of speaking in DC and around the way around workforce development in smart textiles and really putting this industry in front of people. Like this is what you need to be thinking about. This is what you need to be studying. If you want to take advantage of the fact that the playing ground is really even, there's not a lot of people that know, and there's going to be high demand for these skills and these jobs. Half of it is telling people what they should be thinking about. Like this, this is the next big thing. Like, Pay attention to that, or this is how you find this resource. It's like sharing that information and making sure you're sharing it with the people that need to hear it is super critical. So I'm a big advocate for education. And on the material side, once we're at a certain level of scale, absolutely, why why shouldn't Lumia materials be sold you know, across the world? And why shouldn't these tech facts be something that anybody could download online? Why not? Um, not quite there yet. And you know, we need to be cautious because there are bigger powers that be that would love to just gobble up what we're doing. Uh, but once we're a power that be, um, we're going to be, be a power that be good. You know, <laughs> it, you know, the goal is, is, is that is to really be a responsible model and involve 
those people because let me tell you something about fashion. They go to Africa, they go to India, and they rub patterns, and they like you know a lot of beautiful innovations are get knocked off from these communities. Um, I've never seen apparel that is more versatile than honestly Indian clothing. Like everybody looks good in Indian clothes. Does anybody notice that? Like everybody wants to be able to wear that stuff. Some of the most beautiful patterns, colors, you know, come you know, come from these communities and designs and like high technical skill and all of your clothes are made there, you know, Asia, India, Africa. And there's, there's a high, you know, I hate when they, I hate when the industry calls these laborers, low skill workers. Yeah. Are you kidding me? Have you ever, have you threaded a sewing machine? Has anybody done that? That is not low skill. I mean, you know, I say all this to say, uh, I think it's really critical and important when we think about how can we make this accessible is access to info. The internet has been the great equalizer in a lot of ways, but you know, with these emerging technologies and there's several, you got to think about the guy behind you and the people in front of you. And what are you doing to push both of them forward? Because I really believe that true leadership and technology or whatever, it's you lead from behind that your work should be pushing others forward. That's, that's the goal, right? It's not for you to be out front. I mean, maybe it is for some people. Um, but for what we're doing, it's ideally, you know, what you're doing is so grand, it's, it's you know, it's lifting others. Uh, that should be the goal, and that's our goal, and it's on the agenda. Long story short, it is on the agenda. Absolutely. What do you see, um, what piece of tech do you see is going to be in almost every garment in the next 10 years? Let me think. What piece of technology is going to be in every garment wow you know that's a sticky question because if we don't focus on that i guess we goofed huh let me think what piece of technology well obviously us obviously the lumia electronic player is going to be everywhere but what specific application um i actually honestly think um there's some interesting things around data and information um with your clothes i think there's going to come a point where your garments and your belongings are going to be um, part of a larger key signature and ring signature to verify that you're you. I think um, in the future, when sensors get far more advanced, there's going to be some interesting health and safety applications. But you know, in the short term, I think this little tile tag that we're building is going to be something you're going to see in a lot of products or similar technologies that um, harvest information and uh, create a marketplace for sending that information back. There's that lack of info creates a lot of challenges. In apparel alone, it's a $100 billion problem of things being overproduced or things being in the wrong place. And if there was a way for the items in our world to report back, obviously with consent, um, I think you're going to see a lot of that. I think it's going to not make economic or um, uh, sense in a lot of ways for either side not to share that information. So I think I think information transfer not from phones is going to be a lot more common, and then ideally thermal regulation will be everywhere because I think that's that's a very critical and important thing. Um, you need to be warm. You need to be safe. I think it'll be a strange day that someone buys a jacket that can't heat. I think ten years from now it's it'll be a no brainer, and I don't know if they'll even find one that doesn't offer that um, because humans we're funny creatures. Once we've had something good, we refuse to go backwards which is a good thing. So I think once you start seeing your friend with a cool heated jacket that looks just like your jacket, you're going to be like, whoa, 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 whoa. I need me one of those. What's the thing about the fashion industry that you would change because of your experience with oh uh, running Lumia? Oh, wow. That's a long list. That's another podcast. Um, but I also think it's like fashion and tech. I mean, there's a lot I would change about probably most industries. The thing I would change about the fashion industry is this um they do not incentivize internally at the corporate level risk um they really really punish um uh innovation they don't realize that they do they have all these conferences on innovation but if you tell someone you are the director of innovation at this brand and i'm giving you a budget of zero dollars go innovate Make amazing products. You know, what you're going to end up doing is frustrating people. You're telling everyone, we need to change. We've got to be cool. We've got to do this. We've got to do that. But you're not empowering them with the means. So, and actually quite the opposite. Should you empower them with the means, the punishments are pretty severe. If the product that you made doesn't make a lot of money, if it's not cheap enough, da, 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 you create all of these 
uh, restrictions and high cost if there's failure because because you're afraid and you end up shooting yourself in the foot. So the primary thing that I would change is um, the lack of incentive structure for being brave, for being bold, and um, not deputizing people with budgets. You need to give people budgets to try new things. Tech does that very well. They probably do that too well. They, they probably fund too many projects in that industry. But but we see the results, right? We see all of these amazing things that continue to come out because they say to their employees, hey, bring your best, bring your curiosity. You know what? You have an idea. You want you want to do something with it? Okay, prove it. Here's some money to do it. Go do it. And we'll see. We'll, we'll collect the data after. That's a healthy way to grow your business. Um, and apparel does not do that. It's like, make sure that it costs two pennies. Well, nothing new is cheap, really. I mean, it took time to get there. So I think that's the, their primary issue is um, their incentive structure is um, actually what's hurting their growth. Just and um, this is our very final Afrofuturist kind of stock question that we ask all of our guests. Oh, and, I'm ready. Um, you ready? Um, okay. So here it is. If you had the power to write the headline on the front page of the New York Times in 10 years, what would that headline say? Oh, that's a really tricky question. Am I supposed to be optimistic? <laughs> You're if supposed to be you. A... That is all. The only requirement is you. Oh, man, this is interesting. If I could write the headline for the New York Times in 10 years, wow, you got me between a rock and a hard place. Because for those of you that care about astrology, I'm a Libra, so half of the time I'm like, the world is going to be amazing. And the other half, I'm like, hmm, things are looking grim. So let me think about what half is going to write this this headline. Mm, damn. You should have prepped me with that question at the beginning so that I could have <laughs> been thinking about it this whole time because yeah, I wanted, I really want the headline to be good. Yeah. Oh, my God, 10 years from now. Okay, I'm really going to think about this. We're in 2018. It'll be 2028. Um, interesting presidents. Let's see. <laughs> it's May. Oh, my God. What would that headline be? Maybe I should use this as a shameless plug. I'm kidding. <laughs> Lumia Technologies creates an underground, an underwater civilization. No, no. But in 10 years from now, what would the likely thing be? Wow. Oh, you know what? I'm going to pick a really optimistic one. Um, uh, the, uh, the, the Hyperloop that connects New York to LA had its first successful run. Boom, the Hyperloop is well done, done and it's, and it's uh, maiden voyage across the continent was successful. And Lumia technology was in the seats, bro. It was in the seats. <laughs> and what, what, did the, what did the Lumia seats do in the Hyperloop? Uh, you know, they keep you comfortable on your trip. They give you a little massage, keep you warm. You can call for service. You know, you brush the side of your chair. The waitress shows up. They do whatever you want to do. They can change color. Do you upload um, a profile? Do you create a Lumia Hyperloop seat profile on um, social? And then you just upload it. And then it goes right to your seat. It knows everything you want. Exactly. And it knows. It's like um, seat selection, but like on, on crack. But on top of that, actually, you know what? I really like that headline. Let me tell you why. Because it's going to speak to a few things. Yes. It's going to speak to connection, right? Like, how amazing would it be if we could bring the East and West Coast together in that time? Well, and, you know, the, the kind of collaboration and cooperation that would need to happen through all these different states to actually get that tunnel built and all the jobs that would be created along the way and, you know, this vision of a future that we're making. You know, that, that I want that to be the headline. You hear me, Elon? Let's get that hyperloop going so that I can just chill in Santa Barbara um, and and on the beach in L.A. and then come back for my bagels and just do it all on the same day. Boom. I mean, we, we got to push for that. We're going to make I it happen. That. We're going to make that happen. Exactly. Well, Janet Liriano, it was an absolute pleasure to have you on the Afrofuturist podcast. Please tell everybody where we can find you. Where you can find me. Yes. Any well, of your social a, media on a handles. I'm probably eating. Okay. I thought you meant for real. I was like, well, at, at food. I'm usually there. Uh, no, social media. I'm at Janet Liriano, uh, spelled the way 
it's written, I think. Uh, I'm also, yeah, that's pretty much it. I'm on, I'm on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have an Instagram, but you really don't want to follow me there because I, I, I rarely post maybe a picture of a sandwich. But if you wanted to, I'm double T in the number one. So double and T like the drink and the number number one. See what I did there? I've got two got T's it. in my name. Boom. Um, but tweet at me and at Lumia Co. That's our company. So tweet at that. And uh, Lumia website? www.lumia.com. Check right. out the future. We're building it for you. Lumia.com. Fantastic. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure once again, Janet, and um, please come back. I would love to uh, talk more about the stuff that you're doing, the stuff that you're going to do, and food. I love food, too. Yeah, I will throw down on a podcast. Call me back anytime. Word. Thank you so, so very much. Thank you. All right. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Afrofuturist podcast. If you like what you hear, please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get podcasts. If you'd like to be a sponsor of the show, please contact me at AhmedBest at theafrofuturistpodcast.com or at AhmedBest on Twitter. If you have any ideas of any great guests that we would like to talk to on the Afrofuturist Podcast, please contact me again at AhmedBest at theafrofuturistpodcast.com or contact me on Twitter at AhmedBest. Thank you all for listening again, and I'll see you next time.